You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Global tensions being what they are these days, you wouldn't expect to find American and Russian government agencies working together. But some things, maybe even just this one thing, still require collaboration. A U.S. astronaut and two Russian cosmonauts bid farewell to fellow crew members aboard the International Space Station on Wednesday before boarding the capsule for their return to Earth. The flight carrying Vandahai and Russians Anton Shkaplerov and Pyotr Dubrov had been closely watched to determine whether escalating tensions between the two former Cold War adversaries on Earth had spilled over into longtime cooperation in space. For a quarter century now, politics on Earth have had no real effect on the cooperation between the U.S., Russia, and other countries, all working together on the International Space Station. But with rhetoric and conflict and the very real threat of an expanding war here on Earth, that might be about to change. If Russia decides it no longer wants to support the ISS, or the Americans and others decide that sanctions against Putin's regime should extend to space, then what happens to this symbol? of mankind's teamwork orbiting the Earth. Can the ISS even function without resources and talent from both sides? Does either side even want it to? And with private companies like SpaceX pushing hard for increased ISS access and increased work with space agencies, are we standing on the cusp of an entirely new era for humans in outer space? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Ivan Semenik is the science reporter at The Globe and Mail. Hello, Ivan. Hi there. I understand that on Wednesday, three astronauts, one American and two Russians, returned to Earth from the ISS. That's, uh, that's interesting timing for a mission like this. How did that go? Yes, it's interesting timing. I mean, this is a routine uh, return flight. Uh, This kind of thing happens at regular intervals through the year. But obviously, because of the invasion of Ukraine, because of the incredible tension now between Russia and the West, including all the remaining partners uh, of the International Space Station, there was some special attention being paid uh, to this return flight. So it included Mark van de Heij, who's an American astronaut, with two Russian crewmates, uh, all three of them together, leaving the space station on Tuesday night uh, and landing, uh, touching down in Kazakhstan, which is the normal place uh, where the Soyuz spacecraft come down. Um, and, you know, that involves American and U.S. teams working together, uh, retrieving the astronauts in the capsule and, uh, you know, sort of doing all the normal things when when astronauts return to Earth after long duration flight. By all accounts, everything went fine. And that was as expected. You know, although although there's been incredible tension uh, in the background uh, up in space, you know, astronauts consistently say that they uh, work as one team. They're meant to work as one team. And the two space agencies at the operational level have have uh, been working together as normally, uh, in spite of the fact that there has, has been some rancor, uh, very public rancor uh, at, at higher levels. We'll talk about that rancor in just a second. But maybe take us back through, and you don't have to take us back through the whole history, but just historically, just to get a sense of of what's going on up there. Like, 
what is the extent of Russia and American and other countries, I guess, collaboration on the ISS? How separate are they or just like not at all? Well, it, it is meant to be, it literally is meant to be what it says, uh, what it purports to be, the International Space Station. It's meant to be uh, a, an international meeting place. And right from the get-go, Russia was a key player. In a sense, it was just as much diplomacy as it was science right from the beginning. Uh, you know, if people think way back to what it was like in the 1980s, you know, Russia had its Mir space station. The U.S. was planning its space station. But with the fall of the Berlin Wall, with the end of the Soviet Union, there was this uh, uh, pivot to say, you know, why don't we do this all together? Uh, it will become sort of the ultimate symbol way up there in orbit, a symbol that every, anyone in the world could see as it flies overhead. Uh, you know, humanity, uh, you know, exploring uh, space together. Of course, there's one important exception, which is China has been excluded from from uh, the ISS. And that has that's that's a matter of U.S. policy that uh, ha has been in practice for years. But, uh, you know, you basically have Canada, the U.S., Japan and uh, the partner nations of the European Space Agency, all part of the space station alongside Russia. And in fact, the very first piece of the space station to fly to go up was uh, a Russian component, then an American component. And, you know, people may remember sort of in the early 2000s, the construction process that uh, led to the completed station that we have now. So it's fair to say that the Russian part of the space station is deeply integrated with the rest uh, it's it's always meant to have been that way. And Russia plays a, a key role. The Russian parts play a key role because uh, the, the Soyuz capsules also act as boosters for, from, from time to time. Uh, you know, because of uh, drag on the station, like there's a there's a very thin amount of atmosphere, like marginal amount of atmosphere uh, at the altitude where the space station orbits. And over time, uh, it drags the station, station into kind of lower and lower orbit. So it needs to be boosted frequent, you know, from time to time so that it doesn't, you know, burn up uh, and, and start to reenter the atmosphere. So, you know, the, the Russian capsules that are attached to the station have been doing that boosting job in a sense that's one of the essential tasks that the russian part of the space station does at the same time the u.s part is providing power to the russian part so they're they're integrated that way over the life of the iss uh, have earthbound politics ever come into play um to the extent that that they are now maybe not to the extent that they are now i mean certainly the invasion of crimea and there were other other periods of time where it's been a bit chillier, uh, but that's never affected uh, operations. And and it's fair to say that seems to be true even now. It has not affected operations day to day. I think people get serious when you've got lives on the line and people are up there in space. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, I think the thing that makes this one different, first of all, is the the you know the tension now with Russia is is at a level that political tension is is at a level that that really we haven't seen since the height of the cold war or certainly not in the space station's history um and secondly we're at a point where the future of the space station is kind of in question you know there's a there's sort of a you know the space station's already had a kind of 20 year lifespan 
and uh, it's been extended somewhat. And there, there, of course, there are interests in going beyond that now. Other players are getting involved, private space companies and so on. So th- there's this open question about the future of the station. At the moment, Russia is only committed uh, has only committed to continue its partnership in the space station until 2024. So that's really not not much time. Uh, the U.S. has said it wants to continue at least until 2030. So, so the added dimension here is whether or not tension on Earth will change the future trajectory or lifespan of the station. And speaking about that tension on Earth, you know, you mentioned rancor between the two countries when the head of Russia's space agency says that the United States, and this is this is what he said, I think, last week, the United States will be responsible for the death of the International Space Station. What's he referring to? Is that about the boosters? Uh, that's about the boosters, but it is kind of, I mean, I think that's what, what sort of drew international attention here. And I think had people looking at the station for the first time and for many, for the first time in many years, just thinking about, oh, yeah, that's up there. The head of the Russian space agency has a reputation for these outbursts. And once the invasion began, uh, he put out a series of tweets that seemed very threatening, uh, including, you know, uh, talking about bringing the station down or that uh, basically saying it would it would be uh, NASA's fault uh, if the space station came tumbling down. Inclu- you know, and he was mentioning countries like India or China, countries that are on the path of the station. He also uh, retweeted videos of uh partners' flags being removed from a Russian rocket, th- that sort of thing. There was also a, a video that circulated more recently uh, put up by Russian media that uh, uh, sort of showed a modified animation as though, uh, you know, when, when the Russian crew was leaving, that the entire Russian component of the space station was detaching. So the, there's been this kind of taunting. Uh, NASA has tried to completely detach from that and just say, you know, we're running things as normal. But, you know, Scott Kelly, a former NASA astronaut, uh, he and his brother Mark are known for this famous twin study where one was in, one was in space, one was on the ground. Uh, Scott Kelly started engaging with the, uh, with the head of the uh, Russian space agency. So they had a bit of a Twitter battle, but he has since said out of respect for NASA, he's going to stop doing that. Um, and and the, the the sense in the West has been just to kind of uh, let's keep things professional. What I'm hearing from people who are involved in the space program, of course, people are appalled at what's happening in Ukraine and do not support that and uh, and in fact support sanctions against Russia. But they are hoping that, uh, you know, that this will not reach into space and uh, and, uh, you know, somehow curtail the uh, the efforts of, of human spaceflight. How much of what happens up there demands, I mean, the boosters are one thing, um, maybe there are more, but demands the presence of both nations and their cooperation. I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, you say Russia is supposed to be there till 2024. What if they just decide to leave? What if uh, the U.S. does decide to extend sanctions into space? If Russia s- decides to stop boosting the station, like, how does this thing keep working without Russia? Can it? 
Yeah, these are great questions because, you know, I think it's important to think about these contingencies. Uh, you know, you've got like 500 tons of hardware up there and uh, it can't be allowed to uh, return to Earth in some uncontrolled uh, uh, reentry uh, landing wherever. So, you know, that would be sort of the worst case. I guess the worst case scenario would also involve, uh, you know, people, uh, live, the lives of people who are on the station if things aren't run properly. I, in, in the short term, there doesn't seem to be a, a high danger of anything like that happening in the longer term, you know, you sort of think, well, what would happen if Russia pulled away? Right. Uh, you know, there, there are tests of other means of boosting the station that are underway. Uh, there's a Cygnus capsule, it's like a, a cargo ship that's been built by Orbital Sciences, now part of Northrop Grumman. There's meant to be a test later this spring to see if that capsule could serve as a booster for the station. So that would provide, you know, an alternate means of doing the same job if Russia said it's no longer interested in doing that or if Russia pulls out of the station or kind of seals off its its part and then, uh, you know, kind of uh, abandoned. There are three Russian astronauts on the station right now. So as of now, Russia has full presence on the station. And also Elon Musk, you know, SpaceX has said, uh, basically, they would be willing to, I, I think they would welcome a contract from NASA to create some kind of booster component so they could take over that job. Uh, so I, I, you know, there are likely to be solutions if necessary, so that there's nothing uncontrolled uh, that happens with the space station, uh, you, you know, they would be able to keep it up there. Then, But then the question becomes, if Russia is not part of it, in the longer term, what is the value of the station? It's no longer serving the role of sort of a demonstration of, of international diplomacy in space, international cooperation. Is it still, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a science and research space too, but is it, does it have enough purpose in, in that role? Uh, both the U.S. and Russia and China are all looking further beyond, you know, they're looking to the moon, for example, as the next frontier. The U.S. is uh, kind of gathering partners as part of this Lunar Gateway mission. Canada is a partner on the Lunar Gateway, and Canada will provide, you know, the Canadarm3, another robot arm uh, that will go to that station orbiting around the moon. Meanwhile, Russia and China have already agreed to collaborate on a lunar research station uh, so they're at the very beginning of that. But, you know, China is China's space program has developed rapidly on its own. So China is definitely the senior partner, I, I guess, what you know, in that collaboration, although what they would be getting from Russia, I suppose, is all the know how in uh, in just launch capability, because Russia's really been the launch workhorse. Uh, even for the ISS, once, once, I guess one, one other important part of the story is that um, when this, when the American space shuttles stopped flying, uh, Russia sort of assumed the role as the only way of getting to the station. And so sort of through the second decade of the 20, of the station's life, the Soyuz capsules were the way of getting, you know, Canadian astronauts, American astronauts were all going to the station via Russia. That has recently changed because now the SpaceX Dragon capsule has provided an alternate means, uh, both for space agency astronauts of different countries and now also for private uh, citizens to fly to the station. So Russia is no longer essential as the only uh, conductor service to get people there. I was going to ask you about that because SpaceX is sending a mission to the ISS um, just in a few days, right? And 
If that kind of thing becomes more and more common, what does that do to the future of the space station in general? Like if it's supposed to be this big symbol of cooperation between nations in a new frontier, um, but all of a sudden you have private companies using it as a destination and a place to experiment, like that changes the whole point of it existing, right? I think you're right. I think it does add a new thread or a new tenor to life on the station when you have more access by private companies. Now, what we've seen so far is, uh, you know, private companies being contracted by NASA, SpaceX in particular, but but also it, it's, you know, it's not the only company that's doing this, uh, you know, bringing bringing supplies to the space station. So something that NASA would have done on its own now being contracted out to, to other space companies to do it for them. And that has culminated now in SpaceX providing American astronauts with, uh, with a ride to the station. So, you know, basically contracting out the, the ability to reach the station. Um, but now that ability can also be sold to others. And this is exactly what we're seeing a company called Axiom, uh, has, uh, you know, is kind of the, uh, access provider in this case, and it will, uh, facilitate the first ever fully private mission to the space station, which include, you know, so this is mainly very wealthy paying customers, including a Canadian businessman and philanthropist, Mark Pathy. Uh, the latest, uh, scheduled date, the, the launch date has shifted somewhat. Currently it's set for April 6th. Okay. There's this kind of a window between April 6th and April 9th. If it gets shifted beyond that, then they have to wait a little bit longer. It's sort of a, there are these various windows where, when they're able to go, but they're now in quarantine in Florida, ready to fly the, the the crew of this dragon capsule, and they will be a fully private crew. So now it how does that change? Like in the short term, it kind of demonstrates that, you know, with enough resources, with enough money, private citizens can go to the station on their own. Uh, you know, they they have to pay NASA for you know, for use of the air and the water and all of those things. And they and, and they can sort of enact their own programs. Mark Pathy, for example, has his own science program that he's bringing with him. But I think it's interesting. It, it might signal this shift where, you know, if the national space agencies like NASA, like the Canadian Space Agency and others are setting their sights at more distant outposts, uh, say at the moon or, or even beyond, uh, you know, you have the private sector possibly – uh, coming in to say, well, we can do something with the space station. We can turn it into a platform where, uh, you know, uh, research companies or academic institutions or various consortia might want to, who, who might have, want to have access to space, you know, but they haven't been selected through whatever process NASA selects experiments and so on. You know, they just want to pay for their own access that can be facilitated by private companies. So I think we're seeing, you know, there's been this evolution of, of a more of a private sector role. And, and that may in fact be the future of the station is to have this increasing, uh, increasing, almost like you have all these different countries, but now as an additional thread, you kind of have this private sector presence. This is the last thing that I want to ask you about, which is, you know, if, and again, whether it happens now because of tensions over its invasion of Ukraine or whether it happens in 2024 when they want to pull out anyway, um, if the cooperation on the ISS stops at the same time as more private companies are getting into space, like, what does that mean for the future of how we approach space in general? Like, is it a return to the every man for himself, uh, first person claims the gold space race of the past? Or 
I guess it feels fundamentally different, which is why I'm asking. Yes, I, I do think that we're sort of looking at a, a phase shift, maybe not unlike what we saw in, in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, if space began uh, in a competitive context, right? The space race, you know, the, I, I mean, it was, it was incredible to think that this new, new frontier could be explored. And, you know, when the Soviet Union became the first nation in space, I mean, there is this, you know, Russia has inherited this incredible legacy. Soviets were the first in space. And when Sputnik, you know, started flying around in, in 1957, uh, of course, there was this mixture of awe and fear in the West, you know, awe because, oh, my gosh, they did it. And, you know, space is no longer a barrier to humanity. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's this thing that could be weaponized uh, flying right over our heads. And so it immediately triggered a massive response in the U.S., you know, to develop the technology to go into space. And not just that, but to um, to develop the intellectual uh, and the skills base to support that. So really ramping up science education at all levels, uh, from grade schools all the way up to universities, there was this massive emphasis on science that hadn't existed before in the US and that played out across the West. So that competitive sort of environment uh, shaped space really for the first couple of decades. And then it gave way to something that was more cooperative. We saw that happening in the 80s and especially in the 90s and the construction of the space station. So now it seems like maybe one possible scenario now that China has uh, developed its space program, now that China and Russia are beginning to collaborate more. Uh, meanwhile, you know, you've got sort of the... Uh, Japan and uh, Europe and and the West collaborating in their way, it does seem to mirror this idea that globalization is somehow giving way to separate entities or like separate systems on Earth. You know, some people have predicted this that that uh, you know the world kind of breaking up into these giant trading blocks, and 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 if that's the case, perhaps perhaps we'll have we'll see more increasingly separate space programs. I think there are a lot of people that are hoping it won't be the case and that space is still the ultimate demonstration of, of people working together. Certainly when you're looking at, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but everyone says that when you're looking down at the earth from space and you see no borders and you see the fragility of the planet, it does start to make those human divisions seem a little trivial or a little less important relative to the long-term future of humanity. And certainly we're living in a century where common global problems are going to increasingly dominate our you know, are, are going to be front burner issues, climate and biodiversity and so on. So, so I guess that's the tension is the world splitting up into these big blocks, each with its own space presence, or, or will we somehow stitch it back together? That, that, that remains to be seen. Should get our leaders on one of those SpaceX flights and let them see that. <laughs> that would be interesting. Well, it's, uh, it's not, uh, it's not impossible. So, but, uh, yeah, I think that would take a lot of negotiating. No kidding. Thank you so much for this, Ivan. My pleasure. Thank you. Ivan Semenek, science reporter for The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us on Twitter anytime. The Big Story FPN. Write to us. We love email. The Big Story Podcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. Listen to us in every single podcast player. Ask for us on any smart speaker. And as always, I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. 
and we'll talk Monday.